as we begin, I, I will confess there are times in which I sit down to prepare a sermon and I think, hey, this is a really good one. And there are times in which I sit there and I go, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to say. And then Nikki says, well, you should have you prayed about it? You know, and then I said, okay, well, I've, I've prayed, but I'm still not at this point where I, I know what I'm supposed to say this morning. <laughs> so we will, we will consider this story that, that Heidi has shared with the kids, and we're in Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son. And I, I will confess that this story actually raises more questions for me than answers. Because as I, as I sit in it and I listen to this story, there are a lot of questions for me about who am I, which character am I. We were introduced to them. There's a son, there's an older son, there's a father. So which, which character am I in this story? Who, who is the church in this story? Who is the crowd? Who, who are we? How are we supposed to respond, and, and what, is, what is all happening here? So we need to remember the, the context of this story is in Luke 15, and it begins, I loved the way Eugene Peterson put it. He, he begins, by this time a lot of men and women of questionable reputation were hanging around Jesus, listening intently. And the Pharisees and religion, religion scholars were not pleased, not pleased at all. They growled, the other word is often murmured, which is the word in Exodus, the people murmured against Moses, they murmured against God. The people growled, he takes in sinners and eats meals with them, treating like old, them like old friends. Their grumbling triggered this story, which is actually three stories of things that are lost and are found. And we want to look at this last story that Jesus tells in Luke 15. And so let's just read this bit by bit, and I want to offer a couple observations and stories. First of all, though, does anybody know, we call this the story of the prodigal son. Does anyone know what the word prodigal means? <laughs> so prodigal just means reckless. It means wasteful. And, and we, we put a lot of moral things into this story, like when we make the son this immoral person, but, but really it's a story of a reckless son. Although Timothy Keller wrote an incredible book called The Prodigal, the Prodigal God, the, the Reckless, Wasteful, Extravagant God. And he argues that this whole story is actually all about the father, not about the sons, and putting the emphasis on the younger son, older son. We actually miss a lot about God. So anyway, Luke uh, 15, I'm reading from the Common English Bible. We're starting in verse 11. Jesus said, A certain man had two sons. The younger son said to his father, Father, give me my share of the inheritance. And then the father divided his estate between them. Soon afterward, the younger son gathered everything together, took a trip to a land far away. There he wasted his wealth, through extravagant living. So the first thing to recognize, uh, Kenneth Bailey is an expert in Middle Eastern um, context and culture, and Kenneth Bailey has read this story to countless Middle Eastern peasants and tribes throughout all of the Middle East. And he always asks about this story, and what do they say? And he says, has anyone ever in your tribe ever asked for this? 
And the answer is absolutely not. We would never do that. That, w- that is impossible. This is an impossible request to go to your father and ask for the inheritance. He says, well, why? Like, what would happen if it happened? Well, the father would become very angry, very likely would beat his son. Well, why? Because to make this request is to say to your father, I wish you were dead. Hurry up and die and give me what is mine. This is a son who makes a death request of his father. And so in this culture in which family is everything, we, we read this story and we think, well, of course, you, you, you know, pack up from your family and move to Victoria, and, and that's not a big deal, right? But this is, a, this is a culture in which your family was your security, it was your, your base, it was your life, it was your world. And so when this son goes to his father and says, Father, I wish you were dead, give me my third of the inheritance so that I can go, Well, the whole community will now turn against the son. And so when the son sells his stuff and leaves for foreign land, it's almost, it's just required. The son has to do this. He cannot continue to live in this place anymore. And so the son is leaving, wishing that his father was dead. Now, one of the important things to notice is the son does not do anything wrong, actually. According to Deuteronomy, the the youngest son was given a third of the inheritance, but it nowhere actually stipulates that the father has to be dead to do this. So it's it's rude, it's, it's spiteful, it's hurtful, but it's not illegal. The son is not breaking a law, he is breaking a relationship. And that, I think, is one of the most crucial things for us to grasp from this story, is that this is not about a broken law, this is about a broken heart. This is about harming the father, the breaking of the relationship with the father. It's about going away. And the father, by honoring the son's request, this is the most interesting thing, the father tries to keep the relationship. He says, okay, that hurt. (laughs) That was a painful request. Let's see if we can make it. Here, you can have it. I'll give you that freedom. And the son still says, no, I'm out. I'm going to leave. And so this is the broken story of a broken heart of the father. The relationship is broken. I love how um, Henry Nouwen, oh, did I not put this? Hmm. I love how Henry Nouwen puts it when he says, talks about the prodigal son. So as we're, as we're talking about this passage, I just invite you to, to consider which of these characters you resonate with. Henry Nouwen says, of the, he says, I am the prodigal son every time I search for unconditional love where it cannot be found. Why do I keep ignoring the place of true love and persist in looking for it elsewhere? Why do I keep leaving home where I am called the child of God, the beloved of the Father? I am constantly surprised at how I keep taking the gifts God has given me, my health and intellectual and emotional gifts, and keep using them to receive affirmation and praise and compete for rewards instead of developing them for the glory of God. Why do I keep leaving home where I am known as the beloved, the child of God, in which I find my security, my safety, my identity, my, my identity as this loved child? Why do I keep leaving that? 
Why do I continue to look for it in other people in other places? I don't think we can miss the connection between the son who decides that rebellion against his father and trying to live life independently on his own and finding his own place of security and identity and self-worth echoes of the story of Adam and Eve who also decide that they think actually maybe life is better outside of this family of God. Maybe if I try my life and, and build it all without God, maybe I will be more successful or I can find more affirmation. And so there's this echo of the story of Adam and Eve here in Luke 15. So then the story continues. Man, I don't know what happened to... Uh, starting in 14. When he had used up his resources, a severe food shortage arose in the country and he began to be in need. He hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from what the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired hands have more than enough food, but I am starving to death. I will get up, I will go to my father, and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. Take me as one of your hired hands. And so he got up and he went to his father. There's so much that I could say, but first let us just notice that we, we often read into this text the words of the older son. Later the older son will say, he wasted your estate on wild living and prostitutes and, and all of this. But I wonder if there isn't something just to say, Maybe this son was trying to build his security, his identity in a new place. So if you removed from everything that gave you a sense of security and belonging, you move to a new place, you now have to make friends. You have to build security, a place of belonging. It, the next chapter, Jesus tells the story about this shrewd business manager who's wasting, extravagantly wasting, is the word, his master's money. The master finds out and plans to fire him. The shrewd manager gets a word that he's about to lose his job. And so he goes and he goes to all the other people that owe his master money. He says, how much do you owe? Well, let's cut that in half. Let's cut that in third. And he, he builds up a safety net of, of gener generosity from others that he can expect that when he is in need, these others will provide for him. And I wonder if that's not what this younger son is doing. He has cut himself off from the source of his security and his identity, and now he's trying to build it up in another place. And he's saying, well, here, let me you know, take care of you. Oh, you need this. I'll give this to you. And he's trying to build a security for when the bad things happen. And then they do. And that security net that he's been working to build, that place that's going to take care of him, falls apart. And he's left with nothing. And so it makes me ask the question, what are we building our security and our identity on? What are we hoping is going to carry us through? Is it our job, our relationship, the, the income in our bank, the, the retirement package that I'm building towards, my parents that I hope will give me a rich inheritance one day? What is it that I'm building my identity on? Is it the affirmation and praise of other people that will make me feel like I'm doing a good job? What, what is it that we build 
our security? Where, like the younger son, are we spending and giving to build an independent life apart from God? And what will happen when all those other things crash down? Another thing to notice is in this speech of the son, for 1,800 years, both the Arabic and Syriac versions of the text never talk about repentance. This son does not repent when he's getting ready to go home. In fact, it's so fascinating. His words are almost a direct copy of what Pharaoh says in Exodus 10:16. Pharaoh says to Moses, I've sinned against the Lord your God and against you. And everybody knows that Pharaoh is not repenting. He's trying to manipulate Moses and God to get what he wants. What, what we should hear in this plan of the son is to try to manipulate his father to let him back in. And even this word servant, sometimes we say, oh, you know, we'll talk about like the son wants to go and be a slave to his father, but he doesn't. The, the Greek is very, very clearly not the Greek word for slave. He, he comes and says, I want to be a skilled tradesman in your family. What he's actually saying is, is, Father, I messed up. I'd really like you to put me up in the next town as a really skilled person who can make a bunch of money. But I don't want to actually be your son. And I don't actually want to work for you. I want a, still this level of independence. And so Kenneth Bailey says, sadly, the prodigal does not yet understand the nature of his sin. He thinks the issue is lost money. It isn't. It is the father's broken heart. The problem is not the broken law, but the broken relationship. This son thinks, well, if I can get a good job, maybe I can pay back my inheritance. I can earn my way back into the family without having a whole bunch of relationship with my father. So what does the father do with his broken heart? This is the most earth-shattering revelation, the twist in the story that's so familiar to us, but so shocking to the listeners. Starting in verse 20. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was moved with compassion. The father ran to him, hugged him, kissed him. And then his son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Fetch the fattened calf and slaughter it. We must celebrate with a feast because this son of mine was dead and he has come back to life. He was lost. He is found. Let's celebrate. Men did not run in the ancient Near Eastern cultures. It is very likely that this father has not run in 40 years. The word isn't run, though. It's race. When the father saw his son, he raced. And he showered him with kisses. Kissed him, kissed him. When the father saw the son, he didn't hesitate to call for all the symbols and signs of position and sonship again. The robe, the ring, the sandals, these are all the symbols of being a son. You don't give that stuff to your skilled workers. 
He is extravagant. He shames himself. He takes on the, the shame of, of, of his son and he runs out to rescue his son, to welcome him back and bring him into the family. Henry Nouwen says, one of the greatest challenges of the spiritual life is to receive God's forgiveness. There is something in us humans that keeps us clinging to our sins and prevents us from letting God erase our past and offer us a completely new beginning. Sometimes it even seems as though I want to prove to God that my darkness is too great to overcome, while God wants to restore to me the full dignity of sonship. I keep insisting that I will settle for being a hired servant. Isn't it interesting the way sometimes we don't actually want to be a son or daughter of God? We like the idea of the, some of the safety and benefit of God, but we'd like to live in the next town as a hired person. We don't want that level of intimacy but the return of the child to God from our wandering is to return from our rebellion and so enter into reconciliation. Here's my questions that came up. Do I truly, truly want to be so totally forgiven that a completely new way is possible? Do I actually want to break from my deep-rooted rebellion against God and surrender myself absolutely to God's love so that a new person can emerge. There are things in my life that sometimes I rather like. I like my independence. I like my rebellion. I would like to be a well-provided-for employee. But to be a son or daughter? That's a lot of intimacy. There are actually a lot of demands to being a son or a daughter. Do I want to be forgiven? Do I want to break away from those places that I am in rebellion against God? Or do I actually want to be like the son? Some of us really identify with this younger son. We, we have stories in our life where we have totally broken from the Father, where we've lived wildly and, and far from God, and, and, and we have been won back by the love and compassion and grace of God who, who welcomes us back into his family. And, and we really identify with that story of being far away and come close. But I think for others of us, we, we might still be living in that son's speech where we'd like to manipulate God into giving us a good life, to taking care of us, to providing for us without actually fully identifying with God as his son. The son, though, we see in the text, doesn't get through his whole speech. When he actually meets the father, the whole second half is gone. It's just, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. Reminds me of the Jesus prayer, a prayer that gets traced back to 339 A.D. It simply says, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. 
there comes a point, I think, when we come into the, the fullness of the greatness of God's extravagant grace and forgiveness and compassion and welcome, and all we can say is, have mercy. The story ends like this. Now this older son was in the field. There we go. Coming in from the field, he approached the house and he heard music and dancing. And he called to one of the servants and asked, what was going on? The servant replied, your brother has arrived and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he received his son back safe and sound. Then the older son was furious and didn't want to enter in. But his father came out and begged him. He answered his father, look, I have served you. I have slaved for you all these years and never disobeyed your instructions. Yet you've never given me as much as a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours returns after gobbling up your estate on prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. His father said, son, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive and was lost and is found. It's fairly, fairly clear that the older brother is the grumblers, the beginning of Luke 15. The older brother has failed the father constantly in this story. As the oldest brother, it was his job to reconcile the younger brother with the father when the whole relationship started breaking. As the older son, it was his responsibility to go and fetch the younger son and drag him back to his father when he decided to leave. As the oldest son, he was not supposed to stand outside and have his father coming to him. He was supposed to go in. The older son continued to be just as far from the father as the younger son. Turns out he wasn't a whole lot better. Timothy Keller writes this. He says, Neither son loved the father for himself. They were both using the father for their own self-centered ends rather than loving, enjoying, and serving him for their, his own sake. This means that we can rebel against God and be alienated from him either by breaking the rules or by keeping them all diligently. It's a shocking message. Careful obedience to God's law may serve as a strategy for rebelling against God. The older son was rebelling against his father even though he kept the rules. So this is not the story of a good son and a bad son, an immoral son and an immoral, a moral son and an immoral son. Rather, it is about two sons who distance themselves from the father and the way the father continues to invite them back. The story doesn't end with an ending. We don't know what happens. It ends with this invitation to the older son. Those of you who have been sticking around with the father, who are religious and know God, what are you going to do? Are you going to continue to stand outside and grumble? Or are you going to be like the Father? One more quote from Timothy Keller. This one has just been... I've been wrestling with this one. It says, Jesus' Jesus's teaching consistently attracted the irreligious while offending Bible-believing religious people of his day. 
However, in the main, our churches today do not have this effect. The kind of outsiders Jesus attracted are not attracted to our contemporary churches, even our most avant-garde ones. We tend to draw conservative, buttoned-down, moralistic people, the licentious, which means wicked or lustful, the liberated, the broken, the marginalized, a void church. And then this is Keller's thesis. He says, that can only mean one thing. If, our, if the preaching of our ministers, the practice of our parishioners, do not have the same effect on people that Jesus had, then we must not be declaring the same message Jesus did. Oof. If the wicked, the lustful, the rebellious are not attracted to our churches, are we proclaiming the message Jesus did? I watched uh, game four of the Suns Bucks with a friend of mine. I was really hoping it was going to be a Suns and four NBA playoff, but it ended up being, uh, uh, it's not looking good. <laughs> I watched it though with a friend of mine probably a prodigal. Grew up in the church, knows the church, knows about Jesus, not attracted to church. Unhappy with the way he sees the church behave and act, the attitudes. That, I just kept wondering, what does a gathering of the church look like that I can bring him in? Heard a story this week about uh, a person went to another MB church within our city, and because of their lifestyle and behaviors that was known to, to some members of the congregation, was told immediately, well, you're going to hell. The response to that person later was, well, I'm never going back there. Why would I? I've been judged, sentenced. I know what there is to know. How do we invite people into our church and accept them and welcome them in a way that will allow them to experience the Father? What kind of community are we going to form ourselves into? Are we, are we older sons? who stand on the outside and grumble, slaving away for the Father while not actually knowing the Father's love ourselves? Can the church, our corporate gathering, become part of God's family like the Father? A number of weeks ago, we were talking about the Sermon on the Mount, way back. Jesus says this, if you love only those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing? Don't even the Gentiles do the same. Therefore, just as your heavenly Father is complete in showing love to everyone, so also you must be complete. So Jesus looks at his church, his people. He says, if you want to be the kingdom community of God, if you want to be the people of God, here's what I want you to do. I want you to love people the way I love people. And so this is where I want to wrap it up, where I want to end us, is, is this invitation for us as a church, as a community, to begin to see ourselves 
as the, you know, individually, I think we, we can say, okay, am I the father? Am I the, am I the younger son? Am I the older son? Where am I in my relationship with the father in, in all of this? Okay? But now let's just talk, for us as a corporate body, as a community of God, what might God be inviting us to as his church, as the gathered people of God? What is our posture, our, our place? Can I suggest to you that what God wants, what Jesus asks of his kingdom community, the church, is to love people like the Father. And so our corporate gathering, when we gather together and people enter, and when we bring our friends and those prodigals that we know, when we invite people of different ethics and different religions and different cultures and different economic backgrounds, when we bring them in, that what they would experience from us is the corporate fatherhood of God. That what they experience from us is what the younger son experiences from the father. We saw you coming. We ran to you. We hugged you. We kissed you. We welcomed you. We said, we're so glad that you have come. The Father, let me suggest, this comes from Henry Nouwen. He has three ways that shape us to be the Father. So this is my, I think, Jesus says rather clearly, this is what he wants of his people. I want you not to just show the kind of conditional love that everybody shows to everybody else. I want you to show this radical self-giving, boundary-breaking love of God the Father. Three things that Henry Nouwen says are characteristics of the way the Father loves that I think we as a church corporately can also love others. The first is grief. The Father experiences grief in this story. And so Nouwen writes, Grief asks me to allow the sins of the world, my own included, to pierce my heart and to make me shed tears, many tears for them. There is no compassion without many tears. And when I consider the immense waywardness of God's children, our lust, our greed, our violence, our anger, our resentment, when I look at them through the eyes of God's heart, I cannot but weep and cry out in grief. This grieving is praying. So the first thing for us as a church, if we want to be like the Father, is we actually need to let the sin of this world break our heart. We need to grieve for those who do not know the love of the Father. We must grieve. And in grieving, our hearts will be changed, our hearts will be moved. It will move us into a persistent prayer for those who do not know Jesus because our hearts are broken. The second thing he says is forgiveness. We need to live in this forgiveness we sometimes know that we can become angry and resentful, but Jesus taught us to pray to forgive others as we are forgiven to those who sin against us. So how, how do we want God to forgive us? We want him to forgive us unconditionally and often. At least that's how I want God to forgive me. And so we must forgive others unconditionally and often. So now one says, often I have to climb over the wall of arguments and angry feelings that I've erected between myself and those to whom I love but who so often do not return the love. If the wall of fear of being used or hurt again, it is the wall of pride and the desire to stay in control. But every time that I can climb or step over that wall, I enter into the house where the Father dwells 
and there touched my neighbor with genuine, compassionate love. So we have barriers that keep us from wanting to forgive others. We need to step over those. We need to take the risk to forgive others, even when they may not return it, even when they may not uh, respond and accept it. We have to continually step over the walls that we're erecting between us and others and offer them forgiveness. And finally, there's generosity. In the story, we see the father generously give to the son as he leaves. He breaks up his estate. He gives to the son so that he can leave, hoping that it will keep the relationship. He gives generously and he pours himself out to both of his sons more than anyone would ever expect or imagine. And so Henry Nouwen says, in order to become like the father, I must be as generous as the father is generous. Just as the father gives his very self to his children, so I must give my very self to my brothers and sisters. Jesus makes it very clear that it is precisely this giving of self that is the mark of the true disciple. No one can have greater love than to lay down his life for his friends. When we move into generosity, we are moving from fear to love. From hoarding and protecting and holding back to a love that forgives and is generous. I think this calls us to be generous with our words, our time, our money, our attitudes. It strikes me that part of being of the Father is giving this generous is giving generous amounts of time to allow the Holy Spirit to transform people. So rather than expecting them to everybody to change and be like us and, and share our views and thoughts, is we actually need to give them the time to allow the Spirit to work in them. The Son experienced the generosity of the Father and left. Had to go away for a long time to get it and come back. And so those are my thoughts. The questions I leave you, which which character are you? How are you being invited back? Where do you need to to move into closer relationship with the Father, whether you're a good rule keeper or you're a really bad rule keeper, the, the response is the same, move back closer to the Father. Experience the love and the generosity, the compassion, the forgiveness of the Father. And then to us as a church, this is my plea, my, my request. Can we be like the Father? Can we be a church that I can invite my friend to? And we can give him patience and generosity and compassion and forgiveness. We can create space for the questions that he has. The doubts that he carries. The hurt, the bitterness, the resentment. The frustration. It's going to take a lot of time and healing and experience. And if we can be that kind of church... And I'm really excited. We can be a church that is able to grieve over the sins and brokenness of this world and hold that up to the Father. And then we can forgive lavishly and generously and often to those who hurt us and who are different than us. And we can model the forgiveness of the Father to a world that needs to know forgiveness. And we'll do it generously over and over and over. And we'll be like, We'll come back and be like, man, they're still not getting it. Okay, let's go. Let's keep being generous. Let's, let's 
give them the robe again. Let's give them the ring again. Let's hug them in. Let's bring them close. Let them experience the, the love of the Father through the community of the church so that they can experience the love of the Father for themselves. As Jesus said, if you greet only those who are like you, you haven't done anything that nobody else does. Everybody likes people who think like them. Everybody loves and shows generosity to people who look like them. Everybody does that. That's nothing radical. It's, that's, let's be honest. That's being Canadian. We're nice people. Or we like to think we are. The invitation is to love like God. Let's be that church. Let's be those people. Welcome. We love you. We are so glad you have joined us. You should come to my house and have supper. Right? I think this is the invitation God gives to us as his church. Let's be those people. Amen?